Chapter 7 of The Man on the Other Side. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Fedrigo. The Man on the Other Side by Ada Barnett. Chapter 7. Ruth met North as he came up the garden path. So you have come this afternoon. I did so hope you would. What is it? he asked. Nothing wrong with the farm. Wrong with the farm, Ruth laughed. Now just feel it. It was steeped in sunshine and the scent of violas. On the garden wall, the pigeons cooed sleepily. From the river came the lilt of a child's laugh. Feels all right, said North gravely. Just as happy and sound and wholesome as can be, she said. I asked you to come because something wonderful, I believe wonderful, has happened. I felt I must tell you at once, and I want to ask you things. Want to ask you quite terribly badly. Come up and sit by the blue flower border. I have the chairs there. It is at its very best. So you have kept that too, said North, even as his daughter had said. It is one of the many beautiful things I found here, she answered. The place is full of thoughts just like that. I hope I have not lost any, but if I have, they will come back. She stopped to lift up some of the frail nymphillas. Just so North had seen women arrange their children's hair. Are not the delphiniums in perfection? They always look to me as if they were praying. Now years ago, standing in just that self-same spot, Dick Carey had said that very same thing. It came back to North in a flash, and how he had answered. I should think those meek, droopy white things look more like it. For a moment he hesitated, then he gave her the same answer. Oh no, she exclaimed, to pray you must aspire, and they must be blue. Dick Carey had said, prayer is aspiration, not humility. Besides, they're not blue. Again, that sense of well-being which had belonged to the companionship of his friend stole over North. Again, the bitterness and pain seemed to fade and melt. The present took on a new interest, a new understanding. He gave himself up to it with a sigh of content as he dropped into the chair by Ruth's ear's side. The warmth of the June afternoon, the sleepy murmur of the life of the farm, the hum of bees, that wonderful blue, it was all part of it. Now light your pipe and be very comfortable, she said, and left him alone while the peace and beauty soaked in. Left him alone for how long he did not know. When you touch real rest, time ceases. Presently, he relit the pipe, which he had lighted and left to go out. Now, he said, tell me. I am ready to be convinced of anything wonderful just here and now. Ruth smiled. She was sitting very still, her elbow on her knee, her chin in the hollow of her hand. A great content made her face beautiful. Her gray eyes dwelled lovingly upon the little world, which held so many worlds in its circle. The laughter of the children came again across the field. Then she began to talk. It is so wonderful, she said, I can hardly yet believe it can be true, which is so foolish, because the truth undoubtedly is wonderful beyond our conceiving. We only see such little bits of it here, even the wisest of us, and we will think it is the whole. When we do see the whole, I think what will be the most wonderful thing about it will be its amazing simplicity. We shall wonder how we ever groped about among so many seeming complications, so much dirt and darkness. She stopped for a few moments, and North waited. He felt he was shrinking back into himself, away from whatever might be coming. Like many very intellectual persons, he was inclined to resent what he could not account for, and be wholly unsympathetic, if not a little brutal, towards it. Psychical investigations always had repelled him, repelled him only less and in a different way than the search for knowledge among the tortured entrails of friendly dogs. With the great forces of nature, he could fight cleanly and courageously to harness them to the service of man. They were enormously interesting, amazingly beautiful, powerful enough to protect themselves if necessary. One wrested their secrets from them at one's own peril, 
and the scientist who strives with the great forces of nature has the mark of his craft branded into his very soul. Its name is Truth. To that mark, if he be a true scientist, he is faithful absolutely, unswervingly. Indeed, it must be so. And ever seeking the truth, the true scientist knows that his discoveries are ever only partial, that soon, even before his own little day here is ended, will come new discoveries which shall modify the old. So that he will never say, I know, only I am learning. And now, for the first time, psychic investigation was making its appeal to him, by the mouth of Ruth Seer, in the name of truth. Very well, tell me, he said, struggling with his dislike. I'll cast from me as far as possible all preconceived objections, and possibly prejudices. I'll bring an open mind. Ruth turned her whole face alight. Ah, that is just what I want. Only be as critical as you will. I want that too. That is why I wanted so much to tell you, because you will bring a trained mind to bear on it all. Because of that, and also because you are his friend, I can speak about it to you. It would be very difficult to anyone else. She stopped gathering herself up, as it were, before she started. You remember the day you first came to fetch Larry? North nodded. We all four gathered together at the gate, you and I and the dogs. I told you about Larry, how he had come the night before, tired and miserable, and hunted everywhere, and early in the morning he had gone again, so far as I knew. And just before you came, I had found him down by the stream, quite happy, apparently, with a man. I think I told you? Yes. The man was watching some kingfishers, and I stopped to watch them, too. Very still we all were. I had never seen the birds close. The man was lying on the grass, but he looked a tall man. He wore a brown suit, rather shabby. I could not see his face, only the back of his head propped up on his hand. It was a long, thin hand, very sunburned, a well-shaped, sensitive hand, and he had dark hair with a strong wave in it. Though it was cut very short, the wave showed quite plainly and evenly. North had taken his pipe out of his mouth now and was staring at it. Then your motor siren startled us all, and the man vanished as swiftly, it seemed, as the birds. I wondered just a little, when I thought of it after, where he could have got to, but not for long. This morning I saw the same man again. I was in the buttercup field, and he was standing in the road in front of the new cottages looking at them. Again, I could only see his back, and he is very tall. He had no hat on, and it was the same dark wavy hair. You know the little pitch of hill that goes up to the cottages? When I reached the bottom, I could see him quite clearly. He was pulling Larry toward him by a handkerchief lead, and then letting him go suddenly, playing with him, you know? And I could hear Larry snarling as a dog does in play. Then Larry caught sight of me and stopped to look. And when he looked, the man turned and looked at me, too. She paused. The summer sounds of the farm sang on, but it seemed that just around those two there was a tense silence. North broke it. Well, he said, his voice harsh and almost impatient. He had a thin, very sunburnt face, Ruth went on. Lined, but with the lines that laughter makes. Very blue eyes. The blue eyes that look as if they had a candle lit behind them. When he saw me, he smiled. There was a flash of very white teeth, and his smile was like a sudden bright light. North's pipe dropped on the flagged pathway with the little dull click of falling wood. Ruth leaned toward him. Her voice dropped almost to a whisper. Was Dick Carey like that? she asked. Yes. North met her eyes for the first time since she had begun to tell him. The suggestion of unwillingness to listen, which had shown in his manner from the first, dropped from him. What happened next? I don't quite know how to describe it. He did not fade or vanish or anything like that. He remained quite distinct. And that wonderful smile still shone, but my sight failed. 
It seemed to grow more and more dim until at last I could not see him at all. I hurried. I even tried to call out to him, but it was no good. But you were not blind. You could see everything else. Yes, when I looked for them, I could. I wish I could explain to you how it was. The nearest I can get to is the, his figure, while I saw it, stood out more distinctly than anything else. All the rest seemed in the background, indistinct by comparison. I, I know, like, have you ever noticed on a bright sunny day, looking in a shop window, how suddenly the things reflected are much clearer and more visible than the things actually in the window? They seem to recede, and the reflection is strong and clear. Well, it was something like that, as if one had two sights, and one for the moment overbore the other. I'm explaining badly, but it's difficult. At any rate, he did not evaporate or fade as they say these visions invariably do. It was the sight that failed me. That is enormously interesting, said North slowly. You see, said Ruth eagerly, ever since I came here, this... This being in touch with Dick Carey has been growing. It is becoming a wonderful experience. It seems to me of possibly enormous value. But I don't want to take it one step beyond where it can reasonably and legitimately be taken. I want the truth about it. I want your brains, your intelligence to help me. I want you honestly and truly to tell me just what you think of these happenings. And I want to know whether you yourself have had any sense of his presence here, even ever so faint. North recovered his pipe, relit it, and began to smoke again before he answered. Indeed, he smoked in silence for quite a long time. I cannot deny the fact, he said at length, that I have what perhaps should be described as a prejudice against any supposed communication with the dead. It has always been surrounded, to my mind, with so much that is undesirable, nor do I believe in any revelation save that of science, and on these lines science has no revelation. But these are two things here that do force themselves on my consideration. One is that you never knew Dick in the flesh. The other, that since you came here, not before, I have myself felt, not a presence of any sort, but the sense of well-being and content, which always belonged to my companionship with him. And that I never felt anywhere but at Thorpe, or at Thorpe except when you are with me. The latter can be explained in various ways. The former is rather different. Have you ever seen a photograph of Dick, or has anyone described him to you? No, I have never seen a photograph, and no one has ever described his appearance to me. Then she smiled at him suddenly and delightfully. I am not a curious woman, but I am human, she said. Before we go any further, for pity's sake, describe Dick Carey to me, and tell me if he was in the habit of leading Larry by a pocket handkerchief. You have described him, said North, smiling too, especially his smile. I am short-sighted, but I could always tell Dick in a crowd if he smiled, long before I could distinguish his features. And he did lead Larry by his handkerchief. It was a regular game between them. Surely that is the nature of proof, exclaimed Ruth. Let us call it circumstantial evidence. But worth even your, a scientist's consideration? Undoubtedly. By the way, what happened to Larry? When I thought of him again, it was some little time later. He was going back to the house across the field, and... and... Oh, I know it sounds mad. He was following somebody, and so were Sarah and Selina. You know, don't you, what I mean? Dogs run quite differently when they are out on their own. And I have never known Sarah and Selina leave me to follow anyone else before, in all their lives. A any dog would follow Dick, said North, and then looked as if he would like to have taken the words back. But she stopped him. You promised, she said, and that too is a piece of evidence. As I said, I don't want to push it a fraction of an inch beyond where it will go. 
But think what it means. The breaking down of that awful impassable wall between the living and the dead? Think what some knowledge of the next step only, beyond the gateway of death, means. Always supposing there is a next step, said North. Again, there is no evidence I can accept. Though, mind you, he was really in earnest now, I am not among those who are content, indeed glad that it should all end here. This old universe is too interesting a riddle to drop after a few years' study. Ah, do you know Walt Whitman's lines? This day before dawn I ascended a hill and looked at the crowded heaven, and I said to my spirit, when we become the unfolders of these orbs, and the pleasure and knowledge of everything in them, shall we be filled and satisfied then? And my spirit said, no, we but level that lift to pass and continue beyond. North nodded, that's it. I'm out for that right enough if it's going. I don't say, mind you, that I'm certain we don't go on. I'm not such a fool. But in my mind, all the evidence so far is the other way. Have you ever tried to get evidence? No. All the methods appeared to me to be objectionable, very. Even over this, this possible sight of yours, I don't feel keen on the idea that those who have gone are hanging around their old homes, round us who cannot cognize them. He spoke haltingly, as if expressing himself with difficulty. His unwillingness to discuss these matters again became evident. But surely time and the space in the next world will not exist as we understand them here, and that must make an almost incalculable difference. And when you think that so many gave their lives for this world, isn't it reasonable to think that the work for some of them may still be linked up with it? Do you remember when we were talking of the outlook at the present moment, and Lady Condor asked me what I thought of it? And I said we were not alone, that those who had died, that things might be better, they, with their added knowledge, guided, helped, do you remember? Well, that wasn't my own idea somehow. It came to me from somewhere else, quite suddenly, on the moment, as it were, and I had to say it. Though I felt shy and uncomfortable, one does not speak these things to all the world, but someone wanted me to say it, just then and there. She stopped, and in both their minds there was a vision of Violet Riversley's beautiful, angry, unhappy face. I remember, answered North, and your idea is that Dick's mind can communicate with yours by thought. Ruth thought a little. Her eyes looked out without seeing. It is not an idea, she said at last. I know. And have you any idea or knowledge why it should be so, seeing you never knew each other in this life? If you had, and had loved very deeply, it would be more comprehensible, though less interesting from the point of view of proving communication. As it is, there seems to me nothing sufficiently important to account for it, nothing beyond a certain likeness of thought and interests. Ruth smiled. The interest had gripped him again. He was thinking out loud. She waited until he looked at her. What is your explanation? he asked. And suddenly, Ruth found it amazingly difficult to explain. The memory of that velvet night of stars, the message in the song of the little brown bird, the revelation which had come to her, swept over her again with a renewed and surprising sweetness, but of words she seemed bereft. Compared with the wonder and beauty of the thought, they seemed utterly inadequate and hopeless. She put out both her hands with a little foreign gesture of helplessness. "'You have none?' he asked, and she caught the disappointment in his voice, and looking at him saw, as she had seen once before on his first visit, the lonely, tired soul of the man who, losing Dick Carey, had lost much. And Dick Carey was there, so very surely there. It isn't the personal love for one that really brings together, she said, her voice very, very gentle. It is the love for everything that has life or breath. That love must be communion. It makes you belong. There was a little silence before she went on. 
You see, I never had any one person to concentrate on, unless it was old Raphael Goltz. And looking back, I see now he was a cosmic sort of person. He did really in some way grip the whole of things, and it helped me more than I had any idea of at the time. Then I cared so much for all the men out of Flanders who came in and out of my life so swiftly and spasmodically. Then I came here, and found how much I cared for all living things in the lower worlds. And he is linked up, too, with them all, because he cared so much. And we have both by chance, whatever chance may be, focused on Thorpe. Do you at all understand what I mean? Yes, after a fashion, said North. It's like watching someone dimly moving about in an unknown, and to me, a visionary world. I own you are right, he moved in it too, and I am also ready to own it is possible, because of my own limitations, that I can only regard it as visionary. Raphael had many books dealing with these things, said Ruth. I feel so sorry now they did not interest me then. You see, I had never lost anyone by death. I had no one to lose. It was only out of France when the men came in and drank my soup or coffee, and some slept like tired children, and others played a game of cards or talked to me of home, and we all seemed like children of one family belonging to each other. And in a few hours, perhaps less, I would see one or more of them lying dead, gone out like flames extinguished suddenly, and I didn't know what life or death meant. North nodded. It hits one sometimes, he said. And there are people at home. I used to write for some of those who were brought into the estimate and died before they could get them farther. One thought of them all the time, going on with their everyday life at home and waiting. That is why what has happened to me here seems so amazingly important. Why its truth needs such close questioning. Why I so much want your help. For what it is worth, it is at your disposal. And, he paused before he went on with decision, I own I am interested, as I have never been before in so-called communication with another world. There are some books here dealing with psychic faculties. I found them on the top of the oak bookcase, mostly by German authors. Would they have been Mr. Carey's? More likely they belong to a friend of his who used to stay here. Oh, the German friend, exclaimed Ruth. You have heard of him? Mr. Fothersley spoke of him only this morning, and your daughter mentioned him the other day. He was an interesting personality, and very strong on the point that there were extraordinary powers and forces latent in man. I never cared to discuss them with him. He went too far, and looking back, I think I almost unconsciously dreaded his influence over Dick. I don't think I need have. Dick was, I recognize it now, the stronger of the two. But he was interested in the same things. Undoubtedly. Perhaps I was jealous. I preferred him to be interested in my particular line of study. He was interested to a great extent, of course, but Von Jade's lines of thought appealed to him more. I remember the last night Von Jade was here. It was in the June of 1914. He had been paying Dick a long visit and was leaving in the morning. It was the sort of night when the world seems much bigger than it does by day, a wonderful night. The sky was thick with stars and he stood just over there with the light on his face and talked to us as if we were a public meeting. He was a good-looking chap in a hard, frozen sort of style. Oliver Lodge had been speaking to the Royal Arts Society on the sources of power, and it had got Von Shade on to his hobby. "'You talk of the power of atomic energy, you scientists,' he said. "'It is as nothing compared with the forces possessed by man in himself.' If we studied these, if we understood these, if we knew how to harness and direct them, there is nothing in heaven and earth we could not be masters of. Men, we should be gods. 
and you men with brains puddle about among the forces of nature, blind and deaf to the forces in man, which could harness every one of the forces of nature obedient to your will, and leave the study of these things to hysterical madmen and neurotic women, and those who have some knowledge, who have the gift, the power, to experiment with these forces if they would, they are afraid of this and that. My God, you make me sick. He threw out both his arms, and his face was as white as a sheet. Old Dick got up and put his arm around the fellow's shoulders. Goodness knows what he saw in him. We'll get the forces harnessed right enough, old fellow, when we're fit to use them, he said. And they looked at each other for a full minute, Vonshade glaring and Dick smiling, and then Vonshade suddenly began to laugh. Mostly I'm fond of you, Dick, he said, but sometimes I hate you like the deuce. He went the next morning, and I was glad. For another thing, he fell in love with Vi, and she was such a little demon to flirt that until the last minute you never knew if she was serious or not. Morally and socially he was irreproachable, but, well, I didn't like him. I often wondered how he took the news of her engagement to Dick. That happened after he left. Yes, the second time Dick went out to the front. He wasn't a marrying man, really, but you know how things were then. Vi broke down over his going, and he'd always been fond of her since she was a baby, but I don't think it would have been a success. I never could picture old Dick as anything but a bachelor. He stopped, for he saw she was not listening. She was thinking hard, her black brows bent, her gray eyes almost as black beneath them. That is very interesting, she said presently, speaking slowly as one tracking an idea. Von Shade must have known that Dick Carey knew better how to exercise those latent powers than he did. They were both seeking the same thing from different motives. Explain, please. Ruth was silent again for a moment, still thinking hard. It's not easy, you know, she said, but this is the best I can do. They were both scientists of the invisible, just as you are a scientist of the visible. But Dick Carey was seeking union with God, and Von Sheen was seeking knowledge and power for himself. Therefore, they studied the unseen sources of life and death by different methods, and Dick Carey had got farther than Von Shade, and Von Shade knew it. North shook his head. Now you are wandering in the mist, as far as I am concerned, he said. Ruth sighed. I explained badly, but then I am only struggling in the mist myself. I wish I had cared for these things when Raphael Goltz was alive. So many things he said which passed me by, then come back to me now with a new meaning. But there is one thing just lately I have felt very strongly. When he was in the physical body, Dick Carey was a far more wonderful man than any of you knew, except probably Von Shade. Yes, you loved him, I know. The world is black without him. But you didn't think he was anything extraordinary. You are a great man, and he was nobody in the eyes of the world. You don't know, even now, how wonderful he was. And now he has escaped from this clogging mold, this blinding veil of physical matter. He is, I firmly believe, making this little corner of the earth, this little Sussex farm, what every home and village the town might be if we were in touch with the invisible secret source of it all. She stopped, for she felt that North was not following her any longer, was shrinking back again. Oh, she cried, why won't you believe it is worth your study at any rate? North turned on her suddenly, harshly, almost brutally. I can't, he said hoarsely. Don't you see? It's all shapeless, formless to a mind like mine. I want to believe. God, it would give one an horizon beyond eternity. But you talk of what to me is foolishness. He looked at her with an immeasurable dreariness of soul in his eyes. And very gently she put her worn brown hand in his and held it. Listen, she said, and her voice was deep with sudden music. The children come now. You cannot keep them away. Something draws them to Thorpe. The wild creatures one can understand. It is sanctuary, but the children... It must mean something. You are here. She shrank back as if hurt. No, oh no, it's not me. 
is something altogether beyond me. Oh, do listen. They were always slipping in or standing by the gate with their little faces peeping between the bars. Quite tiny, some of them. And I took them back to their homes at first. I thought their mothers would be anxious. And then, then I began to guess. So now I have given them the field beyond the stream and they come out of school hours. The lower field, exclaimed North. No wonder you have taken Fothersley's breath away. Oh, he does not know of that. Fortunately, he was here in the morning during school hours, so he only saw the Blackwall children. You see, she added apologetically, it is such a child's field, with a stream in the little wood with bluebells, and there are cowslips in the spring and nuts in the autumn, and I shall make hay as usual, of course. We cut on Tuesday. Don't you find them very destructive? They haven't trampled down a yard of grass, said Ruth triumphantly. I gave them a strip by the stream under the silver birches, the primrose bit, you know, and the wood, and the hay is in a way there properly. You go and try to walk across it. You'll have a nest full of jackdaws at you. But the trees and flowers. That is just another thing, she smiled at him. Oh, why won't you believe? I've had to teach them hardly anything they know. No branch is ever torn down. Never will you find those pathetic little bunches of picked and thrown away flowers here. The birds are just as tame. I teach them very little. I'm afraid of spoiling my clumsy help. It is so wonderful. They bring crumbs of any special bit of cake they get for the birds, and plant funny little bits of roots and sow seeds. Come down and see them with me. I don't take or tell other people. I'm so afraid of it getting spoiled. North extracted his long frame from his chair. All right, he said, with that odd smile of his, as of one humoring a child. But you are mad, you know, quite mad. You said that to me before. And then North remembered suddenly that he had often said it to Dick Carey. Their way led across the flower garden and under the cherry orchard trees where the daisies shone like snow on the green of the close-cut grass. Here they found Bertram Aurelius lying on his back, talking in strange language to the whispering leaves above him, and curling and uncurling his bare pink toes in the dappled sunlight. His mother sat beside him, her back against a tree trunk, mending the household linen when she could keep her eyes off him for more than a minute. The dogs fell upon Bertram Aurelius, who took them literally to his bosom, fighting them just as a little puppy fights, and his mother smiled up at them with her big blue eyes and foolish, loose-lipped red mouth. "'Have you ever heard anything of the father?' said North, when they were out of earshot. "'Killed at Bullcourt,' Ruth answered. "'I could not help feeling it was perhaps best. He will be a hero to her now, always.' The lower field was steeped in the afternoon sunshine, and the children were chirping like so many birds. Two sat by the stream blowing dandelion clocks, which another small child carried to them with careful footsteps his tongue protruding in the anxious effort to convey the fragile globes to safety before they floated away. Two bigger boys were planting busily in a clearing in the woods. Another slept, seemingly just as he had fallen, with all the lissom grace of childhood, and on the bank beside him a small girl crooned to something she nursed against her flat little chest. Roger North looked at the peaceful scene with relief. "'I believe I'd expected a sort of school feast,' he said. "'If you don't break forth any more violently than this, I'm with you. What are the little beggars planting?' Michael Moss daisies. They should do there, don't you think? And we are trying lilies in that far corner. The soil is damp and peaty. We were too late for fruit trees this year, but I've great plans for autumn planting. North, oddly enough, so seemed to many, was popular with children. He never asked them endless questions, or if they wanted to do this or that. He liked the little people, and had discovered that, at heart, they were like the shy wild things. Leave them alone and keep quiet, and ten to one, presently a little hand will creep into yours. He let himself down on the bank near the crooning child in silence. She was a thin, white slip of a thing, with very fair hair and a pair of big, translucent eyes. It was an old doll she was nursing, so old that its face had practically disappeared, and a blank white circle gazed to heaven from under a quite smart tam-o'-shanter. 
She was telling some story, apparently, but only now and then were any words intelligible. Presently, she began to look at North sideways, and her voice rose out of its low monotone into a higher key. It was like the sudden movement of a bird nearer to something, or someone whose bona fides it has at first mistrusted. The words she was crooning became more intelligible, and gradually North realized to his astonishment that she was repeating, after her own fashion, the old saga of Brynhild, the warrior maid whom Sigurd found clad in helm and burn. A queer mixture of the ride of the Valkyries, of Brynhild asleep surrounded by the eternal fires, Brynhild riding her warhorse onto the funeral pyre, Loki, the fire god, Watson with his spear. All were mixed up in a truly wonderful whole, but still more to his astonishment, it was the sword which appealed evidently above all to this small white maiden. On the sword she dwelt lovingly, and wove her tale around its prowess, and when she brought her recital to a triumphantly shrill close at the moment when Sigmund draws the sword from the tree, she turned and looked him full in the face, half shyly, half triumphantly, wholly appealing. It was as if she said, "'What do you think of that now?' North nodded at her. "'That's first rate, you know,' he said. "'Which would you choose, if you had the choice? Would you choose the ring or the sword?' she asked. "'Well, I'm inclined to think old Watson's spear is more in my line,' said North in a tone of proper thoughtful consideration. "'It broke the sword once, didn't it? At least I believe it did.' "'But it's rather a long time ago since I read about these things. "'Do you learn them at school?' "'They aren't lessons,' she looked at him with some contempt. "'They're stories.' "'It's such a long time ago since anyone told me stories,' said North apologetically. "'I'm afraid I've forgotten.' "'She looked at him with compassion, holding the battered doll closer to her. "'Her eyes reminded him of a rain-washed sky. "'I tell Tommy lots of stories,' she said. "'Another child's voice called to her from the wood. "'Mora, Mora!' and she fled away.' It was like the sudden flight of a bird. "'Who is the child who tells her dolls the story of the ring?' he asked Ruth, when she rejoined him. "'She is rather like one of Rackham's Rhine maidens herself, by the way.' "'Moria Kent? Isn't she a lovely little thing? Her mother is the village schoolmistress.' "'Ah, that accounts for it, I suppose,' said North. Ruth opened her mouth to speak and closed it again. Instead of what she had meant to say, she said, "'Come, it is time for tea, and I have ordered strawberries and cream.' End of chapter 7